Moms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, thanks for tuning in. We have a special episode for you all the way from Nairobi, Kenya. Sacred Footsteps contributor Moazam Mir spoke to Salim Amin, son of the late Muhammad Amin. Muhammad Amin was a Kenyan photojournalist whose work brought international recognition to the Ethiopian famine in the 80s and eventually resulted in the Live Aid concerts. His work was incredibly influential and he documented a number of major international events and was given access where other photographers were not. Moazim spoke to his son, Salim Amin, at his home in Nairobi. Salim is chairman of Camera Pics and founder of the Mohammed Amin Foundation. He has been in the media industry for 30 years as a photographer, cameraman and producer and has won numerous awards for his documentary work. They spoke about his father's legacy as well as his views on modern day photojournalism and the ethics of photography. Muezzam had some issues with his mic, so apologies in advance for the poor sound quality in some places. It's our first on-field episode, so please bear with us. Right, so excellent. It's me, Muazzam, in field. I think it's the first time Sacred Footsteps is actually doing an interview from outside our base in the UK. I'm here in Nairobi, Kenya with Salim Amin, and we're going to be discussing a biographical account of Muhammad Amin. Uh, we can't discuss his work without discussing the man, just because he was such a larger-than-life presence. Uh, so far, we've been discussing the theme of Orientalism in travel photography and in journalism, and I highly recommend listening to the first episode on this, which is, I think, now our most listened to episode, uh, episode 7, and its follow-up which is segues really well into our discussion on Orientalism and travel photography. So, uh, Salim, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Mazur. It's great to have you here. And I'm really happy that I'm the first, uh, the first outside of the UK to do, to do one of the podcasts. So it's a great honor. And uh, what you guys are doing with Sacred Footsteps is, uh, is quite amazing. I, I was not even aware of it until you brought it to my attention. And, and now I keep uh, looking at all the, the, the previous uh, podcasts, but also the photography and some it's of the things... Um, I think it's a very talented people and you guys have really got a good team together. So it's, it's great to be, to be a part of it. So tell us about your father, a bit about his background. He was, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll um, shorten it as much as I can. He was um, born in, in Kenya, uh, son of a, a stonemason from the Punjab, uh, brought here like many uh, Asians to build uh, the railways by the British. And... Um, you know, but uh, so I was born here, brought up in Dar es Salaam. My grandfather was moved around depending on where the railway was going. And um, uh, so it was, it was, uh, uh, he had a very interesting, colorful lifestyle, but very poor, from a poor family, um, you know, never had any of the, any, any of the sort of luxuries in life. Uh, the, the, yeah. He's one of, one of sort of seven siblings. So they, they, you know, they all had to fight for the scraps. So he had to actually save up for probably years to buy his first camera. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, and then the thing is that my grandfather, you know, photography was not seen as a profession. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, probably isn't even seen like that now. But definitely in the 1950s, <laughs> you know, if you came to him and said, you know, I want to be a professional photographer, you'd get uh, beaten. Especially um, if you were from, you know, uh, uh, people of color. Uh, uh, absolutely. An Asian background yeah. is, does not work to be a photographer. Photo- These are seen as hobbies. They're not yeah. seen as serious jobs. It was the traditional uh, accountant, lawyer, um, uh, you know, doctor. That was what you had to be to get out of the poverty cycle and to to be seen as being successful in inverted commas um, was to do that. But for some reason, when he was 13 or 14 years old, first of all, he saw an opportunity. Um, I think photography just for some reason, uh, he, he borrowed a friend's camera and started taking pictures. and And it just, you know, he could tell that he was a he could he could capture moments mm-hmm. that um, that were preserved forever. He was telling somebody's story, but he also realized. You see, he was also a businessman, mm. so he also realized that um, uh, outside photographers were not allowed into the school grounds oh. to cover any of these activities. So he would then sell those photos to the newspapers. But my grandfather was, you know, thoroughly disappointed in him, um, you know, especially when, you know, it was time to go back to, to what was then Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, by then partition had happened and, and, and my grandfather's uh, stint in, in East Africa was coming to an end. So he wanted to go back home and, and it was, again, very disappointed that my father um, didn't accompany him. He, he left the ticket. Well, he left him a ticket and my dad promised that he was going to follow him. Uh-huh. And I think as soon as the ship sailed out there, he just threw the ticket into the water and, uh, and he knew he was never going to leave. This was his home uh-huh. and he wasn't going to leave, leave here. Uh, so again, huge disappointment to, to the family. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, he knew what he wanted to do. Again, as you said, he saw the power of what he, you know, what he possessed with this. And, uh, and he just started, you know, taking professional, he dropped out of school mm-hmm. before he even did his, what was then the equivalent of A-levels. He dropped out because he realized that, um, you know, there's no education that would make him a better photographer. Wow. He just had to go and shoot more. And he never had any formal le- lessons or, or uh, classes in photography. It was just trial and error. He just, he just you know, experimented, um, made sure that his equipment, he knew his equipment inside out. Um, so that he could fix it himself, he could because he couldn't afford to take it for repairs. Looked after it, um, and those are lessons that he taught a lot of young photographers afterwards. Is that you have to look after your gear. So I mean, it sounds like he was an interpret explorer in so many ways. He took the narrative of an emerging Africa, and he basically wrote it in his own hand, especially in the East African region. What do you think drove him to portray this more positive image of people in color in his media? Well, you know, for one thing, being from this region, born here, raised here, um, gave him a lot of uh, gave him a lot of. Um, uh, he had a much bigger connection than reporters, photographers, journalists coming in from outside the continent. Mm-hmm. For him, this was this was home. These were people that he had grown up with. Yeah. These were people that he knew. Um, these were languages that he had learned. Um, uh, these were connections that he had made, uh, in many cases, leaders that he had gone to school with. Um, you know, so he had this connection with them. So in his, in his eyes, it was, you know, he told the stories as, as he saw them. Uh, when I look back at his photography now, mm-hmm. I see it's very raw. Yeah. There was no agenda 
to what he photographed. He didn't. He wasn't photographing it from a colonial perspective. He wasn't photographing it from a freedom fighter's perspective. He wasn't photographing it from uh, any. He was just what he saw. He photographed, and it was raw, and it was real, and it was empowering. I, I, I mean, when I saw some, especially, I mean, even towards the, the later. Uh, photographs that he that he published, you'd you'd see this the, the, these photographs, and you could tell that it was taken by somebody who knew the who who understood the people, yeah. not just you know by some strange lens that's sort of um, observing uh, a specimen or like an uh, an object under a microscope, and then going and displaying it in like a gallery. Exactly, and you know the thing that, that that you know you have to remember the time that he was operating, um, being brown mm. or Asian was of no advantage whatsoever. Um, He was neither part of the uh, retreating colonial empire, nor was he part of the incoming African nationalist. Um, So he was right in the middle, uh, nobody. So he had no privilege. None at all. Uh, The words that he always heard everywhere he went was no. That's all he ever heard was no, no, you can't go here. No, you can't get in here. No, you can't do this. No, you can't be here. So... His whole life was fighting against the no, and um, and it made him a, a more resilient, more determined, uh, because he didn't like that word. Um, so it made him stronger, made him want to look for other opportunities, made him more innovative, because he couldn't be the same as uh, other people. He didn't have the same privileges as a BBC or Reuters or AP photographer or anyone like that, you know, white guy coming in from outside. He didn't have any of those those uh, privileges. And I feel, that, I mean, the case in, in a lot of ways hasn't really changed for, um, you know, like people like us, people of color. Um, uh, I feel like in, in, in media, there has been some strides made, but I mean, they're still, they're still a, we're, st- we're still sort of at, at disadvantaged mm-hmm. um, as, as compared to the mainstream. So, I mean, I, I can understand that. I mean, he, he made these um, really difficult decisions. Like, for example, I, um, his, I think I heard something about how he tried to get into Ethiopia and he wasn't even sure if the runway was open. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, many decisions he made were... See, he, many people see him, especially in his frontline work, um, as, as being reckless and yes. daring and and, you know, um, uh, taking chances and risks. But that actually is far from the truth. Um, yes, they took a lot of risks and stuff, but all of his trips were calculated. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were calculated was because he knew the regions better than any foreign correspondent. Course, so yeah. he many times told me that, you know, before he went into a place, he figured out how to get out of a place. Yeah. So there was always an exit strategy before he even went in. He knew where he wanted to get out from. So he was a well-traveled man. Extremely, extremely well-traveled and extremely innovative and and understood a lot of things. You know, one of his favorite sayings to me was, and to many people, was that I'm not afraid of the bullet with my name on it, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to be killed by the one that says to whom it may concern. Right? So, you know, so it was basically plan. If God's will is that you're going to go by, by being unlucky, then so be it. But don't go by being stupid. Yeah. You know, plan everything properly. You know, God has given you a brain. He's given you the ability to think and to plan. So use that. Don't be stupid. Um, at the end of the day, many things can happen in a, in a war zone that you have very little control over. Mm-hmm. Uh, things can change. But if you've done 
the majority of your planning, then the chances of you getting out alive with the material um, are much higher. And he always, you know, he truly believed there is no picture, there is no story that is worth your life. Never, even though he went into many, many dangerous places. He said, there's no point. There's no point going into these places and getting killed because nobody's going to see the pictures anyway. So what is the point? And secondly, people forget. You know, within a week, there'll be another conflict, another crisis somewhere in the world. People will forget and move on. What, only people that will remember you is your family. And those are the people that will mourn you. And those are the people that you will have let down in the end. So you have to be very, very strategic about how you go in. And unfortunately today, if you bring it to modern photojournalism, war and frontline photojournalism, why are so many photojournalists dying? Why? Because these, these are young people that have no, um, not a lot of experience that are being sent to these places or going to these places of their own, um, uh, of their own merit. But going because they know that in order to make it in this profession, because the, 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 the competition is so fierce, is you have to be in the middle of the bang-bang. You have to get the closest to the, to the action. And if you're not experienced, that means you're going to die. I mean, even by extension, and we're going to speak about Instagram yeah. in a bit, but even by extension, you have um, a lot of recklessness amongst um, sort of Insta-famous people who, um, you know, like I, I read about, um, lately there was... I think an Instagram model who scaled a mountain just to get yeah. a, just to get a, yeah. you know x number of likes, and she unfortunately ended up dying. Um, what, what do you think his his impression would be of um, this new up and coming Instagram generation? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I've often thought just purely, you know, when he died, you know, email was just coming into know, play. Yeah. There was no mobile phones. It was the cup of the, uh, the 21st century. There was yeah. there was there was no mobile phones. There was no. Um, you know, there, there was none of this tech yet. I'm not sure how he would have dealt with it. I mean, what, you know, I strongly believe, in, and I got it from him, I'm sure, is that content, if your content is good, it yeah. doesn't matter what the platforms are. The platforms will always be there. They will always change. They will always, in five years' time, we may not even think about Instagram or uh, Snapchat or um, uh, Facebook or, or Twitter. They may be completely new things that haven't even been invented yet. But the speed at which they're changing. So, but if your content is good, his pictures still work on Instagram or Twitter or um, Facebook or whatever. The content has to be strong. So we must never compromise on the type of content that we produce. Now, the problem with, with um, uh, new platforms, new technology, mobile phones in particular, is that as photojournalists, we must understand that we will never... The chances of us being the first people to get a breaking yeah. news story, it's, you have better chances of winning the lottery than being on the scene of a breaking news story, an explosion, an assassination, a bombing, a terrorist attack, whatever it might be. The chances of you as a photojournalist being there, you have better chances of winning the lottery. So somebody with a mobile phone is going to get those pictures first. So our job description has been changed considerably. Our job now is to go in and, and create reportage that explains what that situation was. We have to go and be very creative in the type of content we produce, the type of pictures that we take, whereby we are explaining a story rather than being on the 
uh, cutting edge of the story or the front line of the story because we won't be. That, those days are gone. Everybody with a mobile phone is a photographer now. But I suppose that is also um, slightly advantageous because, I mean, the, the resolution in some of the cameras and... Um, on, you know, Beautiful. You don't need it. You don't need a camera. You don't need a camera. You don't need equipment. Like, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I, I read about how, um, you know, when he uh, unfortunately lost his arm and um, he also lost all that um, because of that, that explosion that he was in, uh, in when he was covering a story in Ethiopia. He uh, lost his arm. He lost so much of his very expensive equipment... And then, in, in, in the in, by the end, he had to actually, because of his um, prosthetic, he had to share a, a battery for his prosthetic and for his camera. Yeah, well, that he adapted the the prosthetic so he could run, so he could run his cameras off the prosthetic yeah. in case his battery ran down. So he was being more innovative. But you know, you say that it, yes, he, he did lose his equipment or whatever. But the the RPG, the rocket propelled grenade that went through his arm mm-hmm. in Ethiopia in '91 that took off his arm. Yeah actually went into his side. Oh. But because he had his camera bag, his stills camera bag on his shoulder, yeah. so he had the cameras on it, so that went into the cameras. Now, had he been carrying a mobile phone, forget <laughs> it. You know, he would yeah. have been in two halves. Yeah. You know, but he had this, he had his, because he always shot video and still simultaneously, which is still an art form. Uh, you know, the, even in today's technology, it's very difficult to have to, to shoot both video and still simultaneously mm-hmm. and do a good job on both. He did it everywhere he went. Mm-hmm. So he had his... Yeah, his, his six camera mo. Six camera mo, yeah. And so he had his, his, his beta cam camera on his shoulder and he had his stills camera bag on his left uh, left shoulder mm-hmm. and, the, and with a couple of cameras outside and others inside the bag with lenses and stuff. That took the impact of the RPG. Mm-hmm. And the camera... The camera strap, mm-hmm. so the Nikon strap, mm-hmm. um, acted as a tourniquet. It wrapped itself around his what was left of his arm, and it acted as a tourniquet. So again, in mobile phones, wouldn't have happened. That's it. You're gone. You know. So that's you know the advantage of having big ass cameras is that you could actually you know they could be used for a lot of things. I mean, when when they used to go and uh, cover press conferences and things like that with this scrum of people, you know, they'd always use the camera. It would always turn the, to whack people on the head oh. to get out of the way. You know, so they'd always use these big heavy cameras. That they had, you can't do that with it the like with the a, cameras. It sounds like such an um, uh, old and like, forgotten time. Like I mean, I I couldn't I can't relate to some of these stories when I when I. But it's it's but it's uh, the, the, the 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 interesting thing was it's in your lifetime. Yeah, it's still in your lifetime, but in the last ten years, when you think about it, in the last ten, it's only ten years ago that the first iPhone came out. I totally think that new technology and new, um, uh, you know, and, and and new platforms are are a huge advantage for people wanting to tell their own stories. The problem is that there is so much material out there yeah. that it, you can very easily just get lost in all the noise that's there. And of all the material that's out there, there is a fraction that's good quality. You know, it's really, it's really fascinating because all these um, disadvantages that we've discussed and that, I mean, we, we are going to discuss about um, sort of people of color uh, in media, it seems like um, sort of Mohammed Amin found a way to overcome them. So let's talk about his his uh, time in Uganda as a, as an Asian man. Um, mm. How did he ever get close to Idi Amin? Well, I mean, again, he was the 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 big the, the first contact with him was purely because of his name, because mm-hmm. they shared the same last name. Mm-hmm. And so when the journalists um, when when Idi 
took over in Kampala mm -hmm. uh, when his coup, when he overthrew Milton Obote. Um, all the journalists were in Nairobi and they wanted to, they wanted to get to Kampala. But you know, none of the pilots that they, you know that they used to go and charter charter planes from uh, would fly into Kampala without clearance because nobody knew what what was going on there. So you know, he had his you know he had his very famous black book of contacts, and he called State House in Kampala, and uh, you know the operator picked up the phone and and you know he said you know can I speak to General Amin, and the that operator that was really courageous. No, he just, just said, can I speak to General Amin? Yeah. I mean, he's on the end of a phone line, you know, so it's not like he, the guy, the guy could do anything uh -huh. and he's talking to him from Nairobi. And the operator put him immediately through to Idi, uh -huh. um, probably thinking that he was a relative. a relative of some sort, you know. And, you know, Idi loved the cameras. Idi was a, was a showman. Yeah, and sure. so he, you know, he was like, welcomed him and said, yes, you know, come, come and see my victory. And that's when their, you know, friendship, again, in inverted commas, um, uh, uh, started. And uh, he was, I, I don't think Idi, and that was his advantage, that was my dad's advantage, I think, that nobody saw him as, a, as, as brown, black, white, they, you know, they just saw him as a professional, yeah. doing his job. Because he didn't getting, have an agenda. He didn't have any agenda, so Idi had no issues giving him, you know, interviews. Like uh, yeah, and, and, you know, he would, he would you know, he, he covered a lot of the atrocities and the murders and the killing and all that. But he also let the white journalists that he was with take the credits. Yeah, that, so that would, that would ban them. They would then be banned. That's another thing. I, that, that speaks to me so clearly that, um, like, you know, he wasn't some sort of... A, um, glory hunter or because he, he oh was, don't get me wrong he had a big ego he, <laughs> he, he had a big ego and he liked uh, he wanted to be recognized for the work that he did no doubt about that he loved uh, being you know his awards yeah, but he, he knew the yeah. he knew the circumstances and, and he, he would he yeah. would play with those circumstances when he chose when he chose when he decided or thought that it was more of an advantage for him to be famous, then he would pull out that uh -huh. card. When he thought it was more of an advantage for him to just stay under the radar, yeah. then he would do that. So he, again, it's about reading the situation the and being experienced. Sort of producing... Um, and getting, the, story, getting, yeah. the, getting the best story, getting yeah. the scoop. Um, so for him, that was, that was the primary thing, is that he wanted he to be... a long-term plan. Exactly. First in, first, uh, first in, first out. Yeah, which is um, so different from a lot of, like, modern like especially i'm going back to the instagram generation of you know i like even you said the, the first person you can just luckily become famous and um well in his time he had to sort of plan things meticulously and have yeah. backup plans i mean he also lived in a he also lived in a time when uh, instant was not in, in you know important I suppose, there, yeah. there was no you know there was no social media there was no 24-hour news even yeah. so you didn't have to produce things uh, at the whim of this big machine mm -hmm. uh, called 24-hour news or in nowadays the internet where everyone expects an update every 30 seconds you know you're supposed to do stuff he didn't have to do that so he didn't have that pressure they could spend a week covering a story writing it, editing it properly, putting it out, it would have the same impact because there was nobody else that was going to get it out any faster. So do you feel um, like on that note, the quality of content that travel photography is putting out has probably diminished because of how much, how much, how quickly and um, people haven't been having enough time to sort of process and perhaps maybe that's the reason why you have a lot of irresponsible 
Um, I think that the, the quality of news photography has, has diminished. Uh-huh. Travel photography, I don't think so. I think travel photography still, I mean, considering the equipment uh-huh. that you ha- can have access to these days and the quality of the, of the f- uh, photographs that you can produce these days, um, because of the pixel, uh, you know, um, uh, strength of your cameras and all these new, uh, these new tech that's in the Canons and the Nikon's and the and the Lumix and the Leicas and whatever. Um, I think the quality of photography has. Uh, well, no, let me rephrase that. The cameras, yes. Yeah. Photoshop oh. and post production. Yeah. The. The advances in post-production has allowed mediocre photography to look spectacular. And then, I mean, I feel like at the same time, sort of uh, this idea of um, Orientalist photography hasn't really gone away. Because at the time of of your father, I think people had to spend more time on field. So, for example, I I know that he spent a lot of time uh, covering Afghanistan and Pakistan. And that's why he could produce really complex and... and, um, you know, detailed narratives in, in his, you know, his photography, you know, his photography book, A Journey Through Pakistan. And I think mm-hmm. nowadays, because because of um, this leaps in, in technology, people can come into a land, they've never, and also because of the, uh, how easy travel is, people can come into a land where they don't understand the culture, sure. they don't understand the people, they can just take really good quality photographs, uh, even though they don't understand, perhaps this is pro- probably... Uh, disrespectful to the um, right. Yeah, it's unethical. Right. So I suppose I mean that 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 does um, I feel like is probably uh, the other sort of the, you know the disadvantage of. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, Pakistan was a very interesting story for him. So yeah. you know, I mean, that that you know how he got that was um, so so he went into Pakistan with Panorama. Uh-huh. which is the, the famous BBC program, uh-huh. when it was East and the battle between East and West Pakistan, uh-huh. the, the, the formation of Bangladesh, oh, yes. basically. So he went in to do a panorama special and then ended up doing the, uh, a clandestine interview with Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, oh, okay. um, which was the, one of the last interviews that Bhutto ever okay. did. And he did it under the, you know, by, by going around the, the, the minders that they had and sneaking out of the hotel in the middle of the night, as a result of which he was deported oh. uh, from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, his family, his, his parents were threatened there and all the rest of that. So, 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 so he's deported, but then he goes to a Commonwealth conference in Malaysia or somewhere, uh-huh. and uh, Ziaul Haq is there, <laughs> right? And so Zia was quite a, a devout uh, a religious man, mm-hmm. and so Dad had just done uh, well, his I book should, uh, well, Pilgrimage yes, to Mecca, yes. and so he decided to present Zia a copy of the book at one of the sort of gatherings. Gave him a copy of the book, and that was it. Just left, um, and a couple of hours later, he gets a call, and it's from uh, Zia's people, and he said the president would like to see you uh-huh. in his room. So he goes up to to the president's room. And Zia sits him down and he's got the Mecca book in front of him. And he said, you know, Mr. Amin, I would like you, um, I would like you to think about a book on, on Pakistan. Pakistan. Nobody's ever done a book on Pakistan, a, 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 a coffee table book. And he said, well, you know, Your Excellency, it's very nice of you to say that, but I'm kind of banned. You know, I, I can't really come. He said, no, no, it's all sorted out. It's no problem. So for like eight so, months. So President, so, sort of, Zia Haq probably saw the, the beauty that he covered of the Hajj. Of the Hajj. He probably wanted to present a soft image of Pakistan that, that 
and and I don't think he quite knew what he was getting himself in for, uh-huh. the president. Uh-huh. Um, so they gave him full access, eight months. Uh-huh. They crisscrossed him, his colleague Duncan Willits and, and Graham Hancock, the writer. Mm-hmm. They crisscrossed the country. They had helicopters, they had planes, they had uh, vehicles, they had all the, from, you know, everywhere. Um, and at the end of it, he gave him a set of proofs. He went to show Zia the proofs. In those days, there was no digital uh, stuff. So he had to physically print color separations and, and go and show it to him before they printed the book, just for his approval yeah. that he was okay. So Zia spent about two hours going through the proofs. Uh-huh. And at the end of it, he turns to him and he says... I did not know I had such a beautiful country. You know, this is, he did not, he himself did not know the beauty of his own country. You know, the the northern areas and Skardu and Gilgit and all of these places. It's absolutely stunning. The people, the people and the, you know, um, and he didn't know that. So, so, you know, when he was, he was over the moon with this book and this book then just, you know, as everyone he met, um, uh, he gave him a copy of it. But then he asked him to do a book on the armed forces. Armed forces, and I'm just going to get yeah. back to the, get get to that in a second. But I just wanted to sort of let out how I felt about the, the Pakistan book because I think it was such a beautiful thing to be done. Because I mean, up till up till today, people tend to have this very um, skewed impression of, of of what Pakistan really is. So, for example, I remember when I was living in England, I um, was going through some photographs on my on my um, computer. And um, I had a, um, a friend of mine, uh, a European friend, and I said, oh, you know, this is um, a photograph of Pakistan. And what was the photograph? Um, snowy mountains mm-hmm, and like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, lovely hills. And he said, oh, that can't be Pakistan. That's mm-hmm. Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But, and, I said, he, and I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, isn't Pakistan just, you know, desert and camels yeah. and, and, you know, just a war-torn, um, uh, you know, destroyed um, cities and stuff. And I thought, you know, it's really, so, so it's, it's, such a, it's such a tragic thing that um, there's so many beautiful stories out mm. there to be told, but we've been conditioned in such a way to to um, to, yeah. to, to only to only see yeah. one side of the narrative. And I mean that on that note, the defenders of Pakistan book was even more phenomenal because you open the book in 2019 and you see this picture of a, a man in a, in a military outfit with a large gun and a huge beard charging at the camera, screaming, and you mm. think it's a terrorist, yeah. but um, your father portrayed the the armed forces of Pakistan in such a you know complex light. He he, he shared personal stories of people, mm-hmm. and nobody will ever get access yeah. that kind of access again. They will never give a photographer access to. to I mean, he basically was made commander in chief of the armed forces uh-huh. for eight months. So, you know, they basically was just told do whatever you want. You want to go up in F-16s. Yeah. He did 19 hours in F-16s doing air-to-air combat uh, photography okay. and that sort of stuff. Go into the nuclear subs. Go into the yeah, uh, into the this modern, disciplined, well-armed army that was um, at the same level of any army across the world. And so, I mean, that really done does uh, sort of. Make yeah. you call, call, make you call into question some of the biases that some people have about. Um, and, and again, was um, it's because that he was again he felt Pakistan was also part of his blood or culture, yeah. you know and, and culture. It wasn't. I mean, it's not Pakistan. It's the whole of Asia. Asia yeah. You know, it's it's it's, it's that uh, Southeast Asia is part of our DNA. Pakistan and India is just a geographic split. This, this was one country for the longest, yeah. uh, longest possible time. Um, so, you know, it, it is, it is um, he, felt, he felt that connection to, 
the place. It was one of his favorite places to visit. But, you know, that was what was unique about him is he felt at as much at home in Asia as he did anywhere in Africa, as he did anywhere in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. He could travel in and out of all these countries and feel he knew the languages. He, he, he knew the languages. He knew how to operate in those places. He, he had built the contacts. He had the connections. Um, and he was as, as well uh, as comfortable with princes and kings as with people living in, in, in a famine-stricken area in Ethiopia. He saw no difference between any of those people. He treated them exactly the same. He, he, you know, he, he didn't tolerate fools. Um, he respected people's opinions, yeah. um, you know, and, and it didn't matter whether you're rich or poor or in between, or, or you were royalty or yeah. black, white, brown, green. He had no color. Um, he had no, uh, he was completely colorblind, mm. you know, and, and this, I think, was part of what made him such a good, he, you know, technically, as a photographer, he wasn't technically by any stretch, he wasn't a good photographer in the sense that he wasn't as technically um, adept as some of the more great photographers so in the world. Yeah, I mean, even people like Duncan. Duncan yeah. is far more um, is far more uh, is, is a far better photographer in the sense of his knowledge of lighting and this and that and the other. Probably takes better pictures given the time. Dad's strength was he he could get in and out of anywhere. Uh-huh. Um, he could, he, you know, he 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 was a people's person. He knew what to shoot, how to shoot it. Um, he was. He was. He had spent a lot of time mastering his equipment, so he, he knew how it worked. Absolutely, well. and it yeah. came from the, heart. from the heart. Everything was passion about it. But he couldn't sit in a studio. <laughs> That's why he told Duncan, "You do all the studio <laughs> photography." He couldn't sit in the studio and do model shoots and yeah. and these types. Of, that just wasn't him. He just didn't enjoy it. and didn't care. His heart was on the road. His heart was on the road. Whether it was in the early days was was news and and current affairs. But you know, our archive houses three million images. Oh. Um, you know, and it's. It's the majority, 70% of that is not news and current affairs. It is people and culture and places. So you feel and, like, he, like he loved traveling as much as he loved photography? You see, he uh, absolutely, I think it was a combination of both. But you see, for him, there was also a, um, there was also a question of setting the record straight. Mm. Um, you mentioned it earlier. His Africa was not a place of famine and genocide and disease and death. His Africa was a place of immense culture and beauty and, and, and great people, resilient people, wonderful sunsets and sunrises, um, fantastic wildlife and, and mountains and rivers and, and all of that. That was his Africa. But he lived in a time when there was the only interest in content uh, especially television content yeah. was 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 the negative stuff. Yeah. It was news, and news by its very definition is bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what people paid him to go and cover, and he was the best in the world at doing that. But that's what he got paid for. But in his mind, he had no YouTube, no internet, no other platforms to balance the story of his continent. For him, it was books. Mm-hmm. So for him. To balance that story was to go and produce over 75 coffee table books. And he was out of pocket as well. Hardly ever made money on the books. The books was never never a profit-making business, although it did better than now. Um, You know, nowadays nobody buys books anymore. (laughs) But in those days, I mean, Journey Through Kenya and these other books printed in the tens of thousands of copies Uh um, because there wasn't anything like it. So he was an Um, artist for the sake of... 
You know, he wanted to, he wanted to, to like I said, he wanted to tell the stories yeah. of, of his continent. He wanted to balance the picture in his mind that, you know, Ethiopia was a country that he, he loved immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet he had covered the, the, the most disasters, the biggest disasters uh-huh. were from there. That's where he made his name. He had lost his arm and everything else in Ethiopia. But still he produced about eight, eight or nine books on the beauty, the of, beauty the, of, of, yeah. of the country, the yeah. people, the culture, the history, um, you know, the churches. The, I mean, just, and, and you know, for him, it wasn't about covering Muslims or Christians or Jew, uh, Jews or Hindus or whatever. It didn't make any difference to him. He wanted beautiful things. And, and in Pakistan, he... Anybody as sort of strange... He covered India extensively. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he went to the Golden Temple in Amritsar. He went, he, he went and covered Sikhism. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he did a book on Jaginder Singh. Was, oh. To him, there was nothing yeah, about... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was nothing about, um, it wasn't about color, creed, caste, um, uh, racial uh, uh, affiliation, uh, religious affiliation or anything like that. It was, if you had an interesting story, he wanted to tell it. We're going to speak about this in, in a bit, but um, we're going to talk about like uh, some, some, some cases of where um, people have been photographed without their consent. Yes. Uh, sort of native people yeah. or, um, you know, people from uh, particular countries. Uh, by foreign f- photographers who then end up using using these images of these people without their consent or you know recordings yes. of them without their consent to make millions of them. I think exploiting. I think that's something that 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 you know again uh, the problem on in Africa is that the copyright laws are very are very dodgy. Ah. You know, so I mean, for example, I recall an incident that we had here where um, I think Safaricom was launching their service in uh, the, the areas where the Chuka tribal dancers are. Um, uh, it's called. Uh, the, where, the, where the tribal dancers are. Uh-huh. And uh, they wanted a picture for the, for the billboards. Sorry, for those who don't know... Uh, Chuka is a, a Safaricom is the big mobile operator here. Yeah, it's the biggest Kenya. mobile operator in Kenya yeah. um, and one of the largest in the world. They were the innovators of Impesa, which is the mobile money system. They were the first in the world to actually do that. Yeah. And, um, but they wanted to launch this, um, the, their service in this rural area mm-hmm. and they wanted a picture of the traditional drummers. Okay. So they came, their advertising agency came to us, and of course we had the pictures. So these were, then these pictures were taken possibly 30, 35 years ago uh, in the grounds of a hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very famous hotel in Kenya called the Mount Kenya Safari Club. Yeah. Um, and it was in, these guys were, these drummers were performing for the uh, visitors uh, in one of those cultural evenings, uh-huh. and they were performing in the lawns of the of the hotel, and Dad obviously was there, and he photographed uh, the the drummers. Uh-huh. Now, nobody did any consent. It was in a public place. There was they were staying at the thing. Everyone was photographing them. Uh-huh. There was no consent. So when the advertising agency came to us and said, "Yo, this is the picture we want to use for the billboards," and we said, "Look, you know, we don't. These were not models." Uh-huh. These yeah. were just people that were performing. Actual human beings. Who they were performing for, for, for this. They were probably paid by the hotel to yeah. perform, um, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. And, um, but we don't have any release forms or something because these pictures were never meant to be used for any commercial purposes. They were used actually in the book on Mount Kenya and on Mount Kenya Safari Club. Dad used the pictures in the book. So perhaps he exploited uh, them a little bit. But we never did it for, for, for an advertising campaign. So they, they, we said we can't give you any release forms. Uh-huh. 
you, if you want to choose them, you indemnify us. If you want to use them, you indemnify us that, you know, we don't have the release forms and we had advised you not to use them for this. But if you still want to go ahead, it's up to you. And, you know, Safari Comfort, you know, three guys from 35 years ago, whatever. They did the billboard. Next thing you know, they get a lawsuit because those guys are still alive. And they saw their picture on the billboard and they thought, oh, Safaricom, excellent. So they got some lawyer to come in and they, you know, went and sued Safaricom for the equivalent of three or four hundred thousand dollars for, for this use of this image. I don't know what happened to the case. I don't know if it was settled or if they did it. But, you know, these are, I, in a way, I think the drummers were also taking advantage you know, they could have seen this as a really nice opportunity to have their face on a billboard, you know, doing this and gone with a reasonable figure to Safaricom. And I'm sure Safaricom would have paid it. But to go and try and really just exploit them um, for something that is that they didn't do, they didn't do it, you know, to, to demean. They were just and trying to... Safaricom is a Kenyan-based... Exactly. Yeah. And, and Safaricom was trying to just it's celebrate. They were celebrating the culture of, of this. So, you know, you have to look at all these aspects. Yeah. Where it's easy from the outside mm-hmm. to say, oh, yeah, Safaricom is exploiting a rich company. They should, of course, they should pay them. But, Especially you know... Because Safaricom has this sort of patriotic... Um, sort of and Safaricom could have paid, you know, models to pose as drummers with the right outfits. But they wanted something authentic. authentic. You know, they wanted to make it look authentic. So this is, so these are all these incidences where I also feel, like I said before, I think the world has become too politically correct. Mm-hmm. I think we start looking at hidden meanings and hidden agendas in everything that can be seen by many people to be quite innocent. I don't think people go out, at least the, the, the vast majority of people don't go out to photograph things when they travel or when they're on, on safari or these other things. They don't go out to photograph things that, that, that are changing the meaning of what they're seeing. Perhaps they are not as culturally sensitive, sensitive yeah. as they should be, but they're not doing it out of any bad intention. What happens is when it goes on social media these days, then all this stuff starts coming in where people start accusing them of being racist or this or that. Their, their response to that... So, I mean, we're going to talk about um, uh, ethical photography more uh, in, in, in a bit, but I mean, I suppose some of the responses to that also have to be sensitive because, for, for instance, um, there was, uh, and we've spoken about this in, in the previous two um, uh, discussions about um, uh, about this issue with regards to a specific photograph that Steve McCurry took of a lady bathing in Nepal. And... Um, she was bathing in, in a river in Nepal, and you know, people quite instantly asked him, you know, did you have any? Did, did, did she know you took this photo? I mean, uh, is this ethical? Did, 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 I mean, have you perhaps remunerated her in any way? And his his responses to to those to those to those questions were quite demeaning and I mean, condescending. Like, oh, you in, in, you know, um, I took this picture before you were even born, and essentially one of those very defensive. Yeah, I mean, he could have simply said. Um, Perhaps he, if he if he was wrong, he could have said um, he could have taken it down, or perhaps he could have you know simply said, uh, I I have perhaps given a donation to her, you know her village or or, or, or to her or something. So I mean I, I do I feel like I, I understand where you're coming from, where you have to look at it from all perspectives, and while where we become reactive, I think um, where there's a, 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 some sort of a reaction, 
we also have to sort of re- realize what kind of counter reaction that's gonna that, that's gonna, that's yeah. gonna give. and also I think people need to understand what headspace or circumstances the photograph or the photographer was in mm-hmm. when he or she took that photograph mm-hmm. so take for example um I mean, I teach a course on the ethics of photojournalism. Uh-huh. And take, for example, um, Kevin Carter's Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph of the, of the child with the vulture uh-huh. in Sudan. Okay. It was the, the baby oh, with yes. the vulture that was there. Now, he, he got depression after that. So he committed suicide. He committed suicide. Because now, as a photojournalist, I understand exactly what he was doing and where he was coming from. This was a okay. amazing... A little bit of context for the listeners is that, so this was a famine in in Sudan, mm-hmm. and um, and and Kevin was covering this. I don't know which agency he was covering it for, but uh, and Kevin is a very experienced photojournalist and had been South African, had been uh, you know covering the uh, the fight for against apartheid and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so extremely. Uh, you know, uh, sensitive and, and, you know, white South African, but on the side of the anti-apartheid uh, of the oppressed there, right? So, so um, you know, him, um, he took this picture. The, the, the photograph is of a, of a, young, uh, a young baby, uh, a, a small child, um, curled up, curled up on the ground with a vulture, Standing, standing just behind the child, basically waiting for the meal. Yeah. And as a photographer, the child was, on, was still alive. On, on his way to a camp to try and get food or something. Well, the, the child, this looked like it was in the middle of a, a really deserted area, uh-huh. which wasn't the case. Uh-huh. But, so, but as a photographer, that's gold. I mean, as a photojournalist, that picture that tells the story of the famine. But is it unethical? Not the way he didn't. He didn't manipulate anything around it uh-huh. to take the photo. That exactly was where what happened. No, but, uh, I mean, perhaps his depth of field, or yeah. what he shot in the background, or the angle he shot at, might have been different. Uh-huh. Um, but the, the 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 shot, the power of that photograph generated a huge outpouring of aid uh-huh. for Sudan. But on the other right? hand, yeah. So, so that's, that was what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get the most dramatic picture that told the story. And, and that's the difference between photography and videography. Oh, yeah. Photography, there's one picture. That's what tells the story. Yeah. Video, you can still faff around and, and, and work around it. It's much easier to tell a story um, uh, but, but for photography, as a photojournalist, I could look at that and say, my God, that's a once-in-a-lifetime photograph that you'll get. And, and you managed to sort of evoke all these... All those emotions, and, and you've, 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 probably, you've probably helped save hundreds of thousands of lives because of the way you took it. Now, the reason he went into depression and committed suicide is that, you know, whenever he was going to be... F- uh, honored and awarded at all these different things. People are asking, what happened to the boy? Yeah. And he didn't have it because he took the shot and he left because he wanted to get the shot out. Yeah. Um, but there was a feeding camp a, a, a short distance away. Uh-huh. They asked, well, did you take him to the feeding camp? Did you take the child there? He didn't, and he didn't have any, he didn't know what to say because he hadn't thought about it. Because again, it comes down to what is our role, what is our job as a photojournalist? Uh-huh. 
Our job is never, and that's what I was taught when I was in school, is never to interfere in anything. Where you see someone being macheted um, in, by a mob or necklaced by a mob, your job is to take the photos. It's not to go in there and, and, uh, and, and try and prevent what was happening because you could die in that process as well. Um, you know, so our, we've always been taught, and, and I think those lines have become more blurred with, uh, with, um, with, with the way things are. Uh, now, nowadays, it's true. It's, it's a perfect tragedy then, because I mean, on the one hand, there is this sort of um, you could say overriding um, higher moral appeal that or, you know this man should have saved the child, mm. but then at the same time, it does then call into question the um, the ethics of his of his of his uh, or, or, because it, it sort of opens up the floodgates. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, the, the, again, this is this is the, that's why he couldn't live with himself at some point he so he committed suicide because he couldn't live with himself not sure whether he whether he made the right decision because he's now starting to question himself and as a photojournalist the minute you start questioning what you do that's the end of it that's the end of your career um, because you know there are times when you're in a war zone and and you you just have to do what you have to you have to get the pictures out my father went through the same thing in in Ethiopia so in 1984 yeah. yeah so 1984 you know i mean in the midst of this massive famine that nobody biblical famine yeah. that nobody had ever imagined was there i mean you've got you've got you're sitting in the middle of 150,000 people that are going to die within 48 hours of no food what do you do the the sense of over, I mean, you have a few, you have maybe some sweets in your pocket, but who do you give them to? I mean, who do you give like five sweets? There's 150,000 people there. Still, um, even, though you, even though you said that, he, he may not have been able to save one person with a sweet or help, but he, in effect, saved millions of people. But ethically, what is the difference between him and, and Kevin Carter's situation in the sense that, you know, if they had something, even if they had, uh, you know, candy bars or whatever, if they had something, why didn't they give it to to those people, even if it's one child or whatever, why not do it? But they just were overwhelmed by the, 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 the vastness of this situation. And at some point they figured out that the best thing they can do is get these pictures out there and try and save it. And everyone, pretty much everyone they filmed died. Everyone that they filmed in, in that time, because again, this was not the age of the internet or anything like that. But they still you know, to it's save more. five million people survived because of those those images, but uh, over a million died. Um, you know, and 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 so this is a, a huge, it's a huge moral dilemma that you go through. Now, it's not the same in in in. Um, Travel photography or something. This is this is a this is a very different situation. It's very different, very different situation, you know. And um, so, but they felt that they could make a bigger difference, and and they didn't even have time for being emotion, uh, having emotions while they were shooting the story. It's when they came back and they started editing the footage, and they understood it sunk in the enormity of that situation sunk in with them, and that was what broke broke them down. You know, imagine, yeah. and um, but what it did is it you know it it, it changed history. Those those pictures changed history, and to this day, people still people still talk about it because I mean there've been tragedies before that, and there've been tragedies after that. But I mean, we could say that almost nowadays, especially with twenty four hour news news coverage, humans are somewhat desensitized to these things. Yes. But when I when, for instance when I when I went back and I saw the coverage, it was heart wrenching and. He covered. I mean, what what he did that was so different from some of these other some of these other um, 
sort of coverages of, of tragedies. He showed the dignity, rather than the stereotype of like, a, you know, a skinny African child with flies, you know, walking on their face. And he showed like, at the same time, these people were very poor, they were very hungry, but they were very dignified. Yes. And I, I, yes. I, I found that so moving. And it was the dignity of the Ethiopians, that's what made the difference with those photos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was nothing to do with him. It was the dignity of the people. So it was, it was um, genuine. It yeah. was genuine dignity that, you know, in this day and age when in a day, time, the mid-80s was a very, was a very prosperous time for the world. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of money around, yeah. uh, grain mountains were rotting, you know, because of too much uh, harvest, butter mountains were, were melting because there was just too much uh, in the world. And then all of a sudden you have these images of um, people that are, are, you know, completely starving. And yet, you know, there's a little, little um, wall behind which there's enough food for maybe 50 people. Yeah. And um, there's 150,000 people in this field. Uh, but nobody's rioting. Nobody's running to that wall to, to get whatever little food they can to survive. They're just sitting there waiting to see if they're the ones who are going to be marked with the cross on the forehead to be fed that day. But only 50 people were going to be fed. The others were going to die. And they knew it. Right. Yeah. And they knew it. And I mean... A journalist, perhaps, or a photo, you know, a photojournalist or a, or a travel photographer would have. Some of some of them would have probably seen this as an opportunity to show, oh, look at how poorly Ethiopia is is handling the situation, or look at how um, you know backward uh, the Ethiopians are when it comes to um, dealing with their with with, with, with um, you know with poverty and with uh, famine. But it it sort of um, sort of created this global reaction of you know that that could be me. And this is something that, that Orientalist photography hasn't been able to, 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 to do ever since. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but he actually inspired Live Aid. And he inspired um, uh, you know, the, yeah. the World Song. Yes. A lot of people say, oh, you know, Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, and... Um, Bob Geldof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, and I've even seen some of the, some of the footage where like um, some, of those, um, some of the celebrities from the US are like, oh, this is all thanks to Bob Geldof. But I think that yeah. majority of the... Uh, of the um, Credit yeah. should be with. You know, well, it was there would have been no pictures had he not no had he, had he not been able to get into that place. And again, it was all those years of contacts that yeah. basically allow, you know managed he managed to 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 go around the bureaucracy and get to Coram and Mekele, uh, where which was the height of the famine, and get there and uh, and and do it when no other TV crews were allowed in there. Um, you know, it was a very controlled situation by the government. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to let any journalists in there because they were using food as a weapon, yeah. as well against the rebel against the rebels that were coming in from from the north. So, um, so it was it was something that he um, so much more than just a photojournalist or or a travel photographer. He was a hero. He saved millions of lives. I mean, it's so inspiring. Well, at least his work was was you know he managed to to again put from the you know to to, to go back full circle. From the time when he was 13 or 14 years old, he understood the power mm-hmm. of this device that he held in his hand. Yeah. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, in today's day and age, because everybody has this device, yeah. the power is lost. It's not appreciated. Um, it's misused. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the lack of communication is something that has, that has um, um, you know, it's an irony that we have so much communication, but it's the lack of communication that is causing the, the majority of problems in the world today. I'm sure by now our listeners are fascinated with your father's life. 
Are there any biography books or movies or sort of? The- well, there is the documentary Mo and Me, ah. which uh, which was Al Jazeera's launch documentary. Okay. That uh, that the seven part series is available online okay. on YouTube. Yes. Um, there is uh, uh, two biographies. One which was written while he was alive, uh-huh. which is called Mo: uh, The Story of Muhammad Amin, Frontline Cameraman, yes. and one which was written shortly after he died which is called The Man Who Moved the World. The moved so those are the two biographies. Um, we've just come out with a new book called Kenya Through My Father's Eyes, which was launched um, in December of this year. Yeah. And this is a photo uh, book, mm-hmm. uh, limited edition. Each, each copy is, is certified with a number. There's only 2,000 copies oh, wow. that will ever be printed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's the first historical book in the world to have augmented reality in it. Oh, so it wow. has so it has 12 videos inside the book and That's it's amazing. the first in the world. <laughs> and um, and it's very very cool and it's yeah. great tech. Uh, but it's also got great photographers and wonderful history of Kenya. Fantastic. That's amazing. Thank you Mazam. It's been a pleasure. Really has really enjoyed that. Yeah. One of my favorite interviews. Thank you for listening. You can find all the links that have been mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website. You can also watch behind the scenes footage from this episode recording on our Instagram. We're on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else on social media as Sacred Footsteps. <laughs>